and welcome to another week of the Fiber Coven podcast. We're so excited to talk with you and talk with each other about some witchy stuff and some yarny stuff. I'm Lauren from Valkyrie Fibers. And I'm Emily from Kitty with a Cupcake. What news have you for us this week, Emily? Uh, I am doing a virtual show in April. So if you aren't going to be able to attend any of my in-person shows, which you should check out on the events page of my website, uh, the virtual show will be the Darksome uh, Craft Market. And its date is not in my calendar for some reason. So, oh no, there it is. It's the 28th through the 30th of April. So check that out. There will be some sort of a sale. I don't know what yet, but there will be some sort of sale. Maybe the B grades will come back for that weekend. Who can say? Me. Very exciting. (laughs) In the future. (laughs) And then you're also going to be at a real world market? Yes. I will also be at the Goblin Market in Atlanta on the... 22nd of april which should be a fun time i'm very excited to hear how that one goes yeah it's in marietta georgia and there will be goblins and people selling things fantastic Mm -hmm. sweet so crafty time i since we spoke last cast on and finished an entire thing wow it looks good yeah, it's a headband made out of my self-striping. This is my Bo-Katan Crease colorway. I'm thinking I'm just I'm just calling it the heiress because um, I don't want to get sued by Big Mouse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's probably the way to go. It. I just actually, I here's the whole pattern. I provisionally cast on 64 stitches, which is the same stitch count that I would use for a sock. I knit a tube until it was big enough to go around my head. And then I Kitchener stitched it closed with a 180 degree twist in there. And uh, it's a headband. It it works. It's cute. It's cozy. And I love it. Very nice. Yeah. I think it's a fun thing to do with self-striping that isn't um, socks. Yeah. And it's a great way to show off your stripe sequence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It is a good little sample. I really wanted to make a sample. I thought since this character nearly 100% of the time wears a headband, it would be fun to make a little headband out of her color totes yeah yeah and that's what i've got and you put some finishing touches on something i did i put some tassels on that shawl that i was working on which i need to name still um, oh such chunky tassels yes real meat swingers extra extra chunk tassels this is it's so pretty all that i worked on in the teal torch knits guilty Mm -hmm. pleasures mini skein set it's a heart-shaped shawl i will be releasing the pattern once i photograph this and format the pattern uh who knows when i'll do that but we're we're recording this right after astara so the first day of you know the spring equinox so it looks so springy and cheerful it's that that poppy spring neon happiness yeah, it's very neon. The tassels, I think, look really good. I think they're going to make the shawl even more wearable because they're going to keep it in place really nice with their tassel weightiness. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like how this turned out. I love it. Hold it back up so the tassels don't get all tangled. That's so much fun. Yeah, and then the thing that I have mostly been working on is my Lord of the Rings blanket. Yay! I finished the 111th birthday stripe mm-hmm. here, uh, which is my favorite stripe so far. And it's your fifth out of 31? Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, then I started on Ooh. the sixth, which is this really nice rich yellow color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Keep It Secret, Keep It Safe. Mm-hmm. 
and I have been working on this while we watch TV. Fun. I love it. I really like the that pattern too. It's the northeasterly pattern, by the way. And I love your concept for how you're doing it. It's going to be just this epic Tolkien blanket and I'm here for it. It's very cozy to work on. I like it. Mm-hmm. And I really like that it was an advent that was 31 days. So it was just like a year end sort of an advent and not like any like specific midwinter holiday. Just exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I The only thing I've really been working on also is my blanket. My heirloom temperature blanket, but I've done about this much, a couple inches, you know, every, every week there'll be a couple inches more. It's been nice. You can kind of see there's been more contrast in it this week. So we've had less precipitation. Mm-hmm. It's, I just think it's so funny that the, the amount of contrast between the, the high and the low temp absolutely shrinks whenever we have pre- precipitation. But this is reminding me, I forgot to show Chad the picture of the buried cars on your Instagram. I'll have to show him that later. <laughs> Oh, they were just in my stories. They're gone. Oh, alas. You won't see them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when my, when my car starts peeking out of the snow, I'll send you a picture. It's Mm -hmm. very 100% buried, but uh, things are melting. I have, I have hopes that I might be able to use my deck by my birthday in July. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yes, this is the mosaic, or I mean, heirloom temperature blanket by Soraya Hussain. It's mosaic crochet. And I wake up every morning excited to put two rows in it. <laughs> Yay. I love it. And then I've also been kind of working on my poncho, but I've only done a couple rows. It looks the same. So I didn't bring it over. The main thing I was working on was like this entire headband, um, which is fun. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I did actually acquire some things. I rarely acquire things. Are we ready to talk about acquisitions? Do it up. Cool. I got some stickers from Rainbow Possum, and that's Possum with a P, not Possum with an O. And they do Possum art. This was just a little card that they uh, included, and they do all sorts of little... I think I have a card that I bought for you that had that same saying on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and they do stuff like, you know, progressive stickers. I got one that said abortion is healthcare, or just for stickers for throwing in little prize packs for things to put together. And because I like them, I got some a Winnie the Pooh FTP <laughs> little thing going on here. Just some uh, Winnie the Pooh on a little bridge with some leftist graffiti on it, which is pretty fun. And then some sparkly possum stickers that says my possum bites racists or my possum bites turfs. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to like, well, A, I wanted some of these for me, but B, I wanted to make like maybe in the summer, I was going to do some like progressive possum, like prize packs and just maybe some yarn, some of the possum bags I'm making and some stickers and just raise some money for stuff for in the summer. And I also got a couple freebie stickers. I got an RBG one and then this, um, this one with some flowers that says there are more than two genders. So I was like, yay, freebies. Yay. Maybe you should do Fun. a possum colorway. Maybe. Maybe I should. I don't know about that. I have a lot on my plate. I went from having nothing to die up to having everything to die up in like a week. And if you want to hear all about that, you should listen to our office hours on our Patreon. It's true. (laughs) And then I also got some books that my therapist recommended. I got one called The Autistic Brain by Temple Grandin. And I think I might be autistic by Cynthia Kim. Sorry, that's a funny title. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, definitely have recognized it, that I have a couple symptoms that uh, some of the tips and tricks that uh, autistic people use might be helpful for me. And even if, you know, it's not something that resonates with me super hard, lots of my loved ones 
you know, on the spectrum too. And uh, definitely going to pass this one along with the family for uh, <laughs> family neurospicy bonding time. Adorable. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to digging into those. Did you get anything this week? I got a thing, but it's a four foot by six foot banner of my art to hang in a booth. So I'm not going to I'm not going to take it out. I'm not going to unfurl that sail. It's in that giant box over there. Mm. Uh, that that, is... That's angles. That one. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so it's a very big sign to hang up in booths. Uh, it has assorted illustrations of mine on it to attract people to my booth because I felt like just my logo sometimes sometimes people think I sell cupcakes Mm -hmm. which is annoying and uh also I think it's not an unreasonable assumption though it is at some of the events I'm at (laughs) (laughs) there's no cupcakes (laughs) there's no cupcakes at comic-con um okay Mm. but also, my tablecloth is like pink and my logo is like pink and purple. So I think some people who would like some of my spooky stuff breeze past me because they're like, that's for children or like, that's not my vibe. So I mm-hmm. have like ghosts and like witch stuff on the big banner so that it's more easy for people to not just because my stuff is all really tiny. So if you don't actually come up and look at the pins, you might not know like the kind of yeah. stuff I have. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wow. We really charged through our content really fast. Well, it's because we have so much to talk about today. We've really, we've really gone down the, uh, gone <laughs> down the LRH rabbit hole. We are continuing our discussion on yeah, charismatic white dudes who decide to make up their own religions. Mm-hmm. And we left off, what was it, with uh, LRH's... To be fair- Jack Parsons didn't make up his own religion. He just participated in a different religion. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was He was just more the bridge between two guys who really wanted to make up their own religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we left off with Lafayette, Ronald Hubbard's first four boating disasters. Yep, and, and we're two wives in. And two wives in. Uh, and also, what other things? And his... Um, you briefly discussed his what the military thought of him and his little affirmations. That's oh, yeah. where we left off. And now we're ready to jump into Dianetics. Yes, indeed. I just hear Jack Jack Black in my head off of that Tenacious D album singing about Dianetics. But anyway, <laughs> please inform me of Dianetics. <sighs> okay. So after continuous money problems, uh, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard and his current wife, Sarah, who again, was uh, Jack Parsons' ex-girlfriend, who was 16 when Jack Parsons was with her. Uh, (laughs) Whatever. Really young. Illegal. (laughs) Illegal. Um, They moved to Savannah, Georgia in 1948. And this is where he begins work on what will become Dianetics. He publishes his first articles on Dianetics in the Explorer's Journal and Astounding Science Fiction. Both science fiction uh, publications, not science or medical publications it's not a peer-reviewed journal no (laughs) yes and uh he in 1949 uh wrote to assorted professional organizations to offer his research but no one was interested so his this is definitely not gonna plant a seed of hatred in his brain that lasts the rest of his life 
Definitely not. Certainly not. <laughs> Why would it do so? <laughs> so his longtime science fiction editor, John W. Campbell, was interested. Uh, John W. Campbell, long, long time interest in fringe psych stuff. And yeah, mm-hmm. he, this this is a special interest of his. So he invited Hubbard and Sarah to move into a cottage that he owned in New Jersey. And Campbell also recruited Dr. Joseph Winter to help develop the therapy of Dianetics. This is how Campbell roped Winter in. Uh, this is something he wrote to him. Mm-hmm. With cooperation from in some institutions, some psychiatrists, Hubbard has worked on all types of cases, institutionalized schizophrenics, apathies, manics, depressives, perverts, stuttering, neurosis in all, nearly 1000 cases. But just a brief sampling of each type. He doesn't have proper statistics in the usual sense, but he has one statistic. He has cured every patient he has worked with. He has cured ulcers, arthritis and asthma. I mean, it just really like hits all the notes. It's like he goes for like, I want to be a doctor, but I don't want to go to medical school to like, I want to be a church leader. Yes, man. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to note as we get into Dianetics that specifically in a lot of the writings about Dianetics, Hubbard denounces religion. Uh, So Dianetics was not a religion. It was a therapy practice uh, that Hubbard purported as being founded in science, but of course it wasn't. So um, the doctor that was that the editor got to work with him, what is he a doctor of? Do you know? That's a great question. Let's look it up because he could be just like he could just have a Ph.D. in like microbiology or something like not. Well, he 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 leaves eventually. Spoiler alert. Mm. Yeah, he was an actual medical doctor. Okay, interesting. Yes, but but he does bail later so Mm -hmm. um he he was not like just a phd or something he was a medical doctor okay okay um so hubbard and winter were working to refine hubbard's techniques and they tested these techniques out on science fiction fans that campbell recruited because he had a very popular science fiction publication and the basic idea of dianetics is that the brain records every experience of a person's life even when you're unconscious And bad experiences are stored in what Hubbard called engrams in a, quote, reactive mind. And these Mm -hmm. painful memories could be triggered later in life, which would cause both emotional and physical problems. So Hubbard created a process called auditing, where a person could be regressed through their engrams to relive past experiences. This probably sounds similar to some stuff we talked about with the satanic panic. And yeah. this, this would cause engrams to become cleared. Um, and cleared is a, a like a technical Dianetics term that they use. We'll use that a bunch. And the subject would now be considered to be in a state of clear and would be cured of physical ailments. And the kinds of physical ailments that Hubbard claimed that this solved really out there everything from like poor eyesight to allergies he basically thought any symptoms of anything were psychosomatic basically anything that wasn't like a direct cause like breaking your arm from falling from a tree was yeah. caused by your engrams pretty much which is um it's out know, there <laughs> yeah 
it's problematic it's, too. It's very ableist. It's, <laughs> it's very ableist. And, but it is interesting because sometimes people do have psychosomatic issues, but like to assume that that's everything is like, we're just saying deeply ableist. Yes. Um, so the core group, uh, Hubbard, Sarah, Dr. Winter and Campbell founded the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, and they were all on the board of directors. Winter submitted a paper on Dianetics to both the Journal of American Medical Association and the American Journal of Psychiatry, but they both rejected it. Uh, so instead, surprise. I know it's shocking. So they instead decided to announce their work on Dianetics in Campbell's Astounding Science Fiction. <laughs> of which Campbell wrote in an editorial, its power is almost unbelievable. It proves the mind not only can, can but does rule the body completely, following the sharply defined basic laws set forth. Physical ills such as ulcers, asthma, and arthritis can be cured, as can all other psychosomatic ills. <laughs> ulcers, they're psychosomatic. I mean... There is a mental component. Like you can be so stressed out that you ha give yourself an ulcer. Other things can give you ulcers too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's not how it works. No. <laughs> um, so this was published in the May 1950 issue. And Hubbard's companion book, Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, was published in the same month. Hubbard stopped freelance writing at this time and devoted his pursuits solely to promoting Dianetics. And Dianetics was a really fast commercial success. It grew really rapidly. So in August, just three months after the launch of Hubbard's book, they had sold 55,000 copies. Wow. Which is about 4,000 per week. And it was mm -hmm. already being translated into French, German, and Japanese. And there were 500 Dianetic auditing groups that had been set up throughout the United States. And auditing, we didn't really get into that, but it's pretty much role-playing being Dr. Freud with each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell um, me all your deepest... It's like one part like Catholic confessional, one part like one part Freud cosplay. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It was not so enthusiastic, enthusiastically received by the press or like, you know, actual science. The American Psych Psychological Association said Hubbard's claims were, quote, not supported by empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. And Scientific American said the book contained, quote, more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. Subtle. Yeah. <laughs> science fiction writers uh, Theodore Sturgeon and A.E. Van Vogt became trained auditors. Van Vogt even stopped writing altogether for a bit to become the head of the new Los Angeles branch of the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation. And branches were also established in New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Honolulu. This is growing really, really fast. Definitely um, a huge pop psychology fad. Yes, uh, and Dianetics was not a free service. It was like pay-per-play psychology, basically, if you want to call it that. Amateur uh, psychology? Sure. <laughs> Van Vogt later wrote that he remembered uh, doing little but tear open envelopes to pull out $500 checks from people who wanted to take an auditor's course. So he like felt like he was just like receiving money all the time. But like, this is the racket. You start selling the courses. You see this in so many other high demand groups or things that have cold dynamics. Like the parallels between 
Dianetics and Scientology and Nexium are intense. Like, so intense. And like also too, like this is like white yoga teacher training stuff. Like West, I shouldn't say white, I should say Western yoga teacher training programs. Like, yeah, like it makes sense to pay for like a service. Like you go into uh, an athletic or aerobics class and you pay for the service of an instructor but like the real racket is charging people who want to become teachers like thousands of dollars for training and like it's based off the dianetics model we so they're getting all these finances and controls of these finances are super loose Um, hubbard took large sums for his personal use with no explanation. Van Vogt once saw Hubbard take a lump sum of $66,000, which would be close to $650,000 today, out of the Los Angeles Foundation's proceeds. One of Hubbard's employees, Helen O'Brien, says that at the original Elizabeth, New Jersey branch, that a month's income was $90,000 to the branch but that only twenty thousand dollars was accounted for in the budget of the branch so that makes quite a chunk of money missing (laughs) yeah 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 so hubbard was very active in this boom and spent his time lecturing writing and training auditors the boom and the public credibility of this movement was very short-lived so it's august this is when they sold 55,000 books and like they've opened up all these branches and stuff fairly rapidly. Um, so this is just three months after it launched. Hubbard delivered a presentation that failed disastrously and kind of like started the decline of the movement. Uh, so this mm-hmm. presentation was in Los Angeles for an audience of 6,000 people. And he introduced a clear named Sonia Bianca, and he told the audience that as a result of Dianetic therapy, Sonia now had perfect recall. And in the demonstration, Sonia failed to remember a single formula in physics, which doesn't sound that bad, but that was the subject she was majoring in. And then she also failed to remember the color of Hubbard's tie while his back was turned. And at this moment, a large amount of the audience began to get up and leave. And this also caused some really bad press and some writings by some people in the science fiction community about how this was like clearly a fraud. Mm -hmm. So uh, supporters began to have doubts, including Dr. Winter. In 1951, he wrote that he had never seen a convincing clear. And he wrote, quote, I have seen some individuals who are supposed to have been clear, but their behavior does not conform to the definition of the state. Moreover, an individual supposed to have been clear has undergone a relapse into conduct, which suggests an insipid psychosis. So he bails. And Hubbard also lost power as the leadership was structured as an open public practice where others could conduct their own research and claim that their approaches were better than his. So this caused the community to splinter and Hubbard's original ideas to become mixed with other esoteric and occult practices. And this is important to remember because he doesn't like this. And this is a big part of why he sets up Scientology the way it is set up later. Yes, because right now he's very certain he's playing scientist. He wants he's pretending that he's a scientist. Yes. So in late 1950, the original Elizabeth, New Jersey branch was in financial crisis and the Los Angeles Foundation was more than two hundred thousand dollars in debt, uh, which would be nearly two million dollars today. 
and Campbell resigned. He cited Hubbard as being impossible to work with and blamed Hubbard for the disorganization and financial problems of all the foundations. And in the summer of 1951, the Elizabeth Foundation and all of its branches had closed their doors for good. So just a year later than opening. And when there's professional turmoil, there's a good chance that there's some personal turmoil, too. So spill the tea. (laughs) While this was going on, Hubbard began an affair with his 20-year-old public relations assistant, Barbara Kay, in the late 1950s. Sorry, not in the late 1950s, in late 1950. um, Mm -hmm. While Sarah began a relationship with Dianetics auditor, Miles Hollister. Mm -hmm. And Hubbard was actively cheating on on Sarah, but he was really not happy that she was cheating on him. So he secretly ratted the couple out to the FBI, claiming that they were communist infiltrators in May of 1951. <laughs> I just the nerve of this man to pick up a girl in a spooky, like polycule house and be surprised when she wants to have an open relationship. Yeah. <laughs> the um, nerve the nerve of some men <laughs> and he and he wasn't being faithful to her as well <laughs> so he in this letter to the fbi he also claimed that she had a drug addiction because why not and he took time in the letter to describe how unattractive he thought hollister was he like talks about him having a really big chin and big forehead <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard is a distinguished looking person. I don't think he should be throwing stones. <laughs> and the FBI did not take this letter seriously. And an agent ant- annotated the letter with the comment appears mental. <laughs> um, so three weeks after sending this letter, Hubbard decided that the FBI wasn't coming. Uh, so he uh, forced to move on with his alternate plan, which was kidnapping Sarah. So Hubbard and two foundation staff forcibly took Sarah and their year-old daughter, Alexis, to San Bernardino, California. He then unsuccessfully tried to find a doctor to declare Sarah insane. He eventually let Sarah leave, but he took Alexis with him to Cuba. Sarah filed for divorce on April 23rd, 1951, and accused him of marrying her bigamously, which is accurate. He was already married when he married her, subjecting her to sleep deprivation, beatings, strangulation, kidnapping, and suggesting that she commit suicide. This caused some press with newspaper headlines like, Ron Hubbard insane, says his wife. In June of 1951, uh, Sarah secured the return of Alexis by agreeing to a settlement where she had to sign a statement that was written by L. Ron Hubbard. This is what it said. The things that I have said about L. Ron Hubbard in courts and in the public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. I have not at any time believed otherwise than that L. Ron Hubbard is a fine and brilliant man. What a dork. (laughs) Um, So Sarah gets her daughter back by signing that not is she also granted the divorce yes yes she's granted the divorce and moves on good dianetics was about to totally collapse but don purcell a millionaire businessman and believer in dianetics decided to save it and support a new foundation in wichita kansas This collaboration ended less than a year later when Hubbard and Purcell could not agree on the future of Dianetics. 
the Wichita Foundation exploded financially when a court ruled that it was liable for all of the unpaid debts that the Elizabeth Foundation had. Uh, So it was like no longer financially feasible. Um, The Wichita Foundation files for bankruptcy and Hubbard resigns immediately because he's in it for the cash. Uh, and he accused Purcell of being bribed by the American Medical Association to destroy Dianetics. At this time, but really, this guy just threw tons of money at it and it didn't work and he just lost yes. money. So Hubbard establishes Hubbard College on the other side of town from the Wichita Dianetics Foundation. Okay. <laughs> it's basically like across the street of founding another thing. Okay. Um, Love it. And he does this while he's fighting Purcell in court over intellectual property. Hubbard marries 18-year-old Mary Sue Whip, who was a staff member at Hubbard College, and then closes Hubbard College only six weeks after opening it and moves to Phoenix, Arizona. With um, his new, barely with his legal. new 18-year-old bride. Yes. She'll stick around for a while. She's the last wife. Mm-hmm. So, so at this point, we're four failed boating disasters two failed family and still in horrendous amounts of debt yes great (laughs) um so he establishes the hubbard association of scientologists international in phoenix arizona to promote his new science of certainty scientology and he differentiated scientology from dianetics Um, by saying that Dianetics was all about releasing the mind from the distorting influence of engrams, and Scientology is the study and handling of the spirit in relation to itself, universes, and other life. So it's basically a rebrand. And it's pretty clear that he did this because he was concerned that he was going to lose control of the intellectual property of Dianetics to Don Purcell and all of these, like, ongoing legal battles um Mm -hmm. so he still wanted to be able to profit off of his dianetics work even if the court awarded purcell copyright Mm -hmm. so around this time there are throughout like the past like five years of the story basically uh there are several instances of (laughs) science fiction writers who like were acquainted with hubbard uh relaying that they like quoted him as saying like if he ever wanted to get really rich he would found a religion he's been saying that since he lived in the parsonage right after world war ii yes and like according to scientology and the l ron hubbard estate basically none of these were ever said in public but there are so many instances of them. um and one of these is that uh harlan ellison heard that hubbard was complaining about not having enough money and another author lester del rey told hubbard that if he wanted to get rich all he needed to do was start a religion and this was like directly while this like legal battle with dianetics was going on so it was definitely an idea in his brain parts Mm -hmm. yes so he does this rebrand the church of scientology story is that this is when hubbard discovers a new line of research which is that humans are most fundamentally a spiritual being, a thetan, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, so there, this the Church of Scientology, because like this rebrand is like so clear, right? When you read this story, you're like, 
oh, so he's just like doing this because he wants to keep doing the thing, but is concerned about the legality yeah. of it. <laughs> the functioning of it is the same. You have two people like one in these auditing sessions, one playing the psychiatrist and one playing the like, an- like the analyst and the analyzed. Mm-hmm. It's the same stuff, but it's got the f- the filter of like spirituality over it. Yes. So he pivots from the clinical approach of Dianetics to take a spiritual approach with Scientology. And he taught that Thetans were, they created the material universe, but they had forgotten their godlike powers and become trapped in physical bodies. So Scientology's stated goal is to rehabilitate each person's internal Thetan and restore it to its original capacities to return to a, quote, operating thetan and if you read anything or watch any documentaries on scientology you'll know that there are ot levels which stands for operating thetan levels hubbard insisted that humanity was imperiled by the forces of aberration which were results of engrams carried on by immortal thetans for billions of years and now because your soul is immortal and it you can get into all of your bad experiences from your past lives. Yes. So even if you don't have anything traumatic that you need to have these uh, sessions for, you could have something traumatic in something you don't even remember from 500 years ago. So it's, it's a whole thing. Um, this is also when he adds a device called the e-meter to audits. I love um, it. Which is basically like a silly little gadget that just like gives out some readings sometimes. Uh, it, it's a visual aid, you know. Mm-hmm. It makes the whole thing seem more official because there's a machine involved. Mm-hmm. And the organization of Scientology was set up very differently from Dianetics from the start. So remember, he is upset because he kind of lost control with Dianetics. Um, So the Hubbard Association of Scientologists, or HAS, was the only official Scientology organization. They created all of the publications and all of the doctrines. Uh, Auditors were not allowed to deviate from Hubbard's approach. And the branches, or orgs, as they're often called, were operated as franchises. So like a restaurant franchise, basically. Each franchise Mm -hmm. holder was required to pay 10% of the income to the central organization. Uh, and they were expected to find the franchises were expected to find new recruits uh, and then could only provide basic services. Higher level services could only pr- be provided by HAS themselves. So it's also a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Is this the point where they start having all the training levels costing like each you have to like move up this like rank and you take all these courses? Kind of. Yeah. Um, OK. Yeah. Th- this is like the start of that. Nice. Um, nice, I mean terrible. Yeah. And that's this hasn't like fully evolved yet because it wasn't super popular yet. Um, mm-hmm. So that this like model of the franchises and like the levels and stuff really works out for Hubbard in the long run. But it took a while to get off the ground. He had delivered a 70 hour lecture series in Philadelphia and it was only attended by 38 people during this time. So that's like. Mm-hmm. Very poor. (laughs) And Mary Sue gives birth to a daughter. Um, Hubbard's first son, Nibs, moves in and becomes a Scientologist. Finances are very tight. It's very much like operating on a shoestring budget. There are assorted quotes from like workers involved at the time saying that their offices were like just really dismal and sad and they didn't have enough stuff. 
So in February of 1953, Hubbard gets a doctorate from Sequoia University, which is an unaccredited degree mill. He basically just like pays for a degree so he can say that he's Dr. Hubbard now. And memberships decline and finances get even worse. So this is when he really decides to make it a religion. So previously, all of this this new Scientology stuff was like, quote unquote, spiritual. But this is when we're going full religion. So, yes, he after a few weeks of becoming Dr. Hubbard, he writes a letter outlining the plan to turn Scientology into a religion. Uh, and the letter stated, we don't want a clinic. We want one in operation, but not in name. Perhaps we could call it a spiritual guided center. Think up its name, will you? And we could put in nice desks and our boys in neat blue with diplomas on the walls and one, knock psychotherapy into history and two, make enough money to shine up my operating scope and three, keep the HAS solvent. It is a problem of practical business. I await your reaction on the religion angle. In my opinion, we couldn't get worse public opinion than we have or have less customers than what we've got to sell. So he's basically like, screw it it's time to make religion because i don't know what Mm -hmm. else to do and that letter Mm -hmm. was written to helen o'brien who had been with him since the start of dianetics and she resigned the following september she's like peace (laughs) um so december 18th 1953 hubbard incorporates the church of scientology church of american science and church of spiritual engineering in camden new jersey Hubbard, mary sue and his secretary gon galusha were the trustees of the three corporations and HAS explained the pivot into a religious organization to their members um, so that they could avoid scrutiny from practicing medicine without a license from the medical community. So they were basically like, this is so like we won't fall under controversy and it's a religion now and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so franchises became churches of Scientology and some auditors even began dressing as clergymen and wearing clerical collars. Fun. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody loves to dress up. Yeah. Scientology began to grow steadily. Hubbard won victory over Don Purcell in 1954 when Purcell finally gets sick of all of the lawsuits that Hubbard is constantly bombarding him with. And he just gives the copyrights of Dianetics back to Hubbard. So Scientology was marketed through medical claims. This is an example of an advertisement from like the mid 50s. Plagued by illness will make you able to have good health. Get processed by the finest capable auditors in the world today. Personally coached and monitored by L. Ron Hubbard. I really enjoy how this grift appeals to like multiple types, like personality types. The sort that wants to play Dr. Freud and the sort that wants to believe they were Joan of Arc in a past life. Yeah. Or Cleopatra or like whatever like nobody ever has boring past lives no (laughs) it's frustrating please continue Um, so the religious angle paid off and scientology was very profitable for hubbard um he was paid a percentage of the church's gross income and in 1957 he was paid about 2.5 million dollars in today's dollars mary sue had three more children and in 1959 he used his new wealth to purchase saint hill manor an 18th century country house in Sussex, formerly owned by the Maharaja of Jaipur. So it's a really nice ass house. Um, In England. 
in England. Okay. Uh, yes. And the house became his permanent residence and a training center for Scientologists. Mm-hmm. In the start of the 60s, Hubbard was uh, leading a worldwide religious movement with thousands of followers. But a decade later, he would be looking to flee widespread controversy. So let's dive into that controversy. This this next controversial stuff is like mostly late 50s and throughout the 60s. He became increasingly paranoid and introduced security checking because he was really control hungry, probably because of how things went with Dianetics earlier and and just generally being a narcissist. <laughs> um, so to identify people as potential trouble sources and suppressive people, this is when we start hearing the word suppressive more often. Um, members were interrogated while using the e-meter and asked questions like, have you ever practiced homosexuality? Have you ever had unkind thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard? They were even asked about crimes for their past lives. Um, so again, like you, you don't have to just be having thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard to be kicked out. They could just not like you and decide that like you committed a genocide in a past life. So you're a bad person or whatever nonsense. Nobody was a boring little peasant in a past life. <laughs> you're always either like Joan of Arc or Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1958, the IRS took away the church's tax exemption after it found that Hubbard was profiting unreasonably from Scientology's nonprofit church income. And the FDA also took action and seized thousands of pills that were being marketed as radiation cures in addition to publications and e-meters. So they weren't just like doing the auditing. They were also selling some like kind of Uh, supplements alex jones style sketchy supplements (laughs) yeah it's all well and good if you guys want to play around with like a part of a lie detector test and and have a go at therapizing yourselves like knock yourselves out yeah there's a fake supplements is maybe where where the government should say no Yes. Uh, And they also seized the e-meters like they didn't get all of them, obviously, but the e-meters they seized during this time, uh, they were seizing because they were requiring these things to be labeled as ineffective in the diagnosis or treatment of disease, because that's very much what Scientology was supporting, like purporting. Mm -hmm. So following the FDA's action, they got a lot more negative publicity because that was a really public like takedown of them. Uh, And in Victoria, Australia, they actually formed a board of inquiry to look into Scientology specifically. Uh, And as a result of this inquiry, they condemned Hubbard himself, saying that he had doubtful sanity, a persecution complex, and displayed strong indications of paranoid schizophrenia and delusions (laughs) of grandeur. Wow. And this inquiry led to Scientology being banned in victoria australia and this led to an even more negative view throughout the world because like an actual government had banned it and done an official inquiry um and politicians in the uk which again is where hubbard is living during this time uh begin to press the government to take action against scientology um so he hopes to form a safe haven for scientology uh to really get his cult on and he travels to Rhodesia, which is today Zimbabwe, to look into setting up a base there. Oh, and he, no. And he tries to gain favor with the local government, uh, even trying to personally deliver champagne to the prime minister Ian Smith's house. But Smith so, refused to see him. 
So this is a this is a white government in Rhodesia at the time. The colonial white supremacist government took one look at L. Ron Hubbard and said, no, thank you. Correct. Is that what I'm hearing? That is what you're okay. hearing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Rhodesia then refused to renew Hubbard's visa, uh, which caused him to leave. So he gets kicked out right away. That plan doesn't work. And in July of 1968, the British Minister of Health announced that foreign Scientologists would no longer be permitted to enter the UK and that Hubbard was excluded from the country as an undesirable alien. This action caused more inquiries to be launched in Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa. Uh, so he freaks out. He's he's like getting kicked out of the country he was living in. And uh, he responds to this in three different really culty ways. So this is when we get real culty. <laughs> the first thing he does is he introduces ethics technology. And this is to tighten internal discipline within Scientology. This includes a couple things, one of which is requiring Scientologists to disconnect from any organization, individual, including family members deemed to be, quote, suppressive. Knowledge reports were also introduced, uh, which were basically internal ways to report on each other. Um, he had a long list of misdemeanors, crimes, or high crimes that were all different reasons that they could be like tattling on each other and getting each, each other in trouble. And the hierarchy fair of crimes is going to come up later. Yes. <laughs> Keep that one in your mind. <laughs> uh, and the fair game policy was also introduced. Uh, and this applied to anyone who was considered an enemy of Scientology. And the policy was that they may, quote, be deprived of property or injury by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline of the Scientologist. They may be tricked, sued, lied to, or destroyed. Definitely not going to run amok with that in about a decade. Nope. So that's the first thing he does. He introduces, like, stop talking to your family members who don't believe in Scientology and also, we are now an internal police state, and you're all going to tattle on each other when you're doing bad stuff, and you can harm non-Scientologists if you feel like it. Well, it's, it's people that are speaking out about sci Scientology. It's not yes. just hurt. But like hurt normies, enemy of Scientology is so vague, right? Right. But it's still not good when you have somebody who's supposed to be a spiritual leader saying like you should do physical violence against people who speak out against us. Yeah. It's a bad look in general. Yes. So the next thing he does is he creates the Guardian's Office or the GO. And this was a new agency within <laughs> Scientology that was headed by Mary Sue, who is his wife. Uh, and it was a public relations and legal actions wing. So as negative media came in, the GO responded with hundreds of writs for libel and slander. And it issued more than 40 of those in a single day. So they're just yeah. like constantly crying and the libel GO and slander. Definitely gets used for both internal and external, like, quote unquote, like intelligence work. These people love to play spy. Yes. And then finally, in 1966, Hubbard acquires his own fleet of ships, which we will hear about next time. Fantastic. What a lovely discussion of Dianetics, the founding of Scientology, and uh, 
I look forward to hearing about the next great boat disaster, which I will be telling you guys about next week. I'm so I'm excited. I'm so excited to hear about the greatest final boat disaster. <laughs> <laughs> the real coup de grace of L. Ron Hubbard's boat disasters, the Sea Org. Stay tuned for next week. Uh, we don't have any promo for you this week, but um, if you're looking to find out anything else about us, uh, what the things we sell, the things we talk about on the internet, where you can find our Patreon or show notes for what you just listened to, please head on over to fibercoven.com and that will get you the links to all that good stuff. Uh, we have a wonderful Patreon group and Patreon content over there. We do craft hangout nights. So come and jump in and join us. And until next week, Kevin, keep making yarn magic. Bye. Bye.